Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. While they're making their way downstairs, today we're going to pick back up in our series on Jesus in the Bible and how he's foreshadowed in the Old Testament. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and find Exodus 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, this will be up on the screen and uh, you'll be able to follow along with us. I want to open up with a question that I thought when I initially wrote this sermon, I thought this would be kind of a rhetorical question, but I'm finding that it's not a rhetorical question anymore. But have you ever had to lock your entire family in your house because you were afraid that if you went outside, they might die? A year ago, I never thought that question would be something that I would consider. But have you ever had to lock your entire family in the house because you were afraid that if they went outside, they might die? Well, this year has taught me have good locks. Um, Because obviously, as you all know, we had to quarantine and to some degree still are quarantining uh, as a result of the coronavirus. And those of us that live in Philadelphia have been dealing with looting and uh, rioting and other things. And so when I wrote this question a couple weeks ago, this was, I guess, we had already had the virus and already had one round of looting, but we had, have had more recent looting since then. When I reread this last night as I was preparing, I just kind of laughed. Like, yeah, I have. We have had to lock our families in their house at times, just to keep them safe, right? Um, We obviously did this during the coronavirus. We wanted to keep everybody indoors. I know that I, uh, you know, when at the very beginning, I wasn't totally sure what was going on. We did masks. I mean, remember back when we were supposed to sanitize all your groceries when they came in the house? (laughs) I can't tell you the amount of shouting my wife and I did at each other. Did you sanitize that? Why did you put that on the counter? Wipe it down, spray it with bleach. All the, all the arguing over that kind of stuff just because we were afraid of what may or may not happen because no one knew anything and what, uh, about how it was going. And then with the looting, I've made sure, you know, I put extra locks on the door, bought security cameras. This was actually something that was uh, circulating on social media during the riots and the looting that took place directly after George Floyd was killed that... Um, this never happened, but this was the, the rumor that was going around that looters were going to come up to our part of town and anyone that had a blue light bulb on the front of their house, which signifies like support for the police, they were going to target houses that had blue light bulbs. And so on my neighborhood, every blue light bulb went missing that night, right? Just as a precaution, something that you would do uh, so that you wouldn't be targeted. Now, I'll be honest, at that time, this is, the thought, this is the thought that came to my mind back in those days and still comes to my mind. This feels like living through the plagues in Egypt. This feels, you know, the, everything that's going on, the, the uh, loss of property, the loss of life, the disease, all, it just felt like the plagues of Egypt and uh, that particular thing where you, people were going and making taking precautions and protecting their doorways and entryways, I was like, this is like Passover. This is straight up like Passover. And actually, 
I find this interesting, and I don't know what to make of this, and maybe we make nothing of it, but the date in the United States that had the peak, the highest number of coronavirus deaths, which was 2,752 deaths, the date with the peak in the United States was April 15th, which is the last night of Passover this year. It's the night that they would have been commemorating the angel of death sweeping through the camps of Israel and taking the lives of all the firstborn, which is the story we're going to look at today. But that highest death count took place the final night of Passover, April 15th this year. I think most of you remember those days being tightly locked into our homes and just hoping that this would all blow over. Well, that had me thinking about Passover and that had me reading that story. And as I uh, read the Passover story back then and again this week, I just you know, was reminded of our current situation. The Passover story from Exodus chapter 12, what precedes it is the people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. 400 years is t- biblically is like 10 generations. I mean, there were entire generations that never knew freedom. Great-grandpa was a slave, great-grandpa was a slave, dad was a slave, I'm a slave, my kids are slaves, my grandkids are slaves, my great-grandkids are slaves. Like, never knew freedom. 400 years, they were in slavery. They cry out to God. They are wailing to God. God, are you ever going to step in and do anything about this? And finally, God determines now is the time that I'm going to get involved. He identifies Moses. He actually sets this up, this is crazy, 80 years in advance. 80 years in advance, God gives this little baby Moses, preserves Moses' life so that he's not killed. God orchestrates the circumstances of Moses' life so that he is raised in the, t- the, the palace of the Pharaoh of Egypt. Even though he's a little Jewish baby, he's raised in a wealthy Egyptian household. His life is saved when he's floated down the river, if you know the story. Uh, Moses, uh, when he's 40 years old, actually sees an Egyptian slave master beating his Jewish kinsman, and he kills that Egyptian slave master, and in the process flees for his life out into the wilderness at age 40. When he's 80, so 40 more years have passed, when he's 80, he is a shepherd. He is taking care of sheep in the wilderness and he walks by something he's walked by a thousand times except this day it's different. He walks by a bush. How many bushes do you think Moses walked by in 40 years of shepherding in the desert? Thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. But this bush was different. It was on fire, yet it was not being consumed. It was burning, but it wasn't shrinking, it wasn't charring, it wasn't being uh, consumed in the fire. And Moses made the decision that set the course of his life, and this is the decision, I mean, I harp on this all the time whenever we talk about receiving revelation from God or hearing from God or receiving our calling. Moses made this decision in this little obscure passage in Exodus He sees the burning bush and Moses says, let me go take a look at that. Now that sounds like so minor, like, oh, let me go take a look at that. But that let me go take a look at that decision is actually what leads Moses into an encounter with God in the burning bush, which totally changes the trajectory of his life. That's where he receives his calling. He sees this thing that's, that's strange. Let me go take a look at that. And that, that's, I, this is what I tell people all the time. That's the decision that, got Moses, that helped Moses receive his calling. The curiosity 
The, the thing that saw something that was out of the ordinary, something that seemed miraculous, and he investigated it. Whereas we would just blow past it. We would see something that's maybe miraculous or see something that's maybe extraordinary, and we would be like, yeah, well, I got other stuff to do. I'm going to keep it moving. That little decision, that holy curiosity that Moses had is actually what changed his life. And he said, I'm going to see what's up with this. So Moses is sent by God to the Pharaoh with this uh, mandate. You are going to set my, bring my people out of slavery. And Moses, of course, objects, just like almost everybody in the Bible that receives their calling is like, not me. But God sends Moses and Moses goes and if you know the story, there's 10 plagues, there's frogs and gnats and murder hornets. The Hebrew word is locusts. Just kidding, there's no more murder hornets in the Bible, but doesn't it feel like that some days? So there's bugs and there's blood and there's all darkness and all of this stuff. And what's incredible is the God's people, the people of Israel, don't experience any of it. They live in their own little city where they are safe uh, called Goshen. They live in the city of Goshen and when it's dark in Egypt, it's daylight in Goshen. When there's gnats in Egypt, there's no gnats in Goshen. When there's blood in the water and frogs coming up out of the Nile River in Egypt, there's none of that in Goshen. It's like the town that they were in, as long as they were in their town, they were safe which, this is not what I'm talking about today, but just a heads up, Goshen is Jesus. Our Goshen is Jesus. He's the one that as long as we're in him, we're safe. The plagues don't touch us if we're in Jesus. Does that make sense? So Goshen is a foreshadowing of Jesus. As long as you're in him, you're safe. So these plagues go through the people of Egypt, and the Pharaoh is so stubborn, he will not learn his lesson. And at the beginning of these plagues, you know, it's simple like a little bit of water turns to blood or some frogs crawl out of the Nile and it says that the Pharaoh hardens his heart. And then another plague and he hardens his heart and another plague and he hardens his heart. And it gets to the point where his heart is so hard that he can't respond and he's, this tipping point comes where now God, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He's given Pharaoh so many opportunities to respond and react, and Pharaoh has taken none of those opportunities, so God says, the tipping point has come, I'm gonna take over here, and we're gonna stay on the track that we're on. And so the track that they're on now is 10 plagues. Well, the first nine plagues don't get the Pharaoh's attention. He's not willing to let the people go, and so there's this 10th plague we read about it in chapter 11 of Exodus, verses four through eight. This is just a summary. This will not be on the screen. I'm just gonna read Exodus 11, four through eight. This is what we call the, par- uh, the, the plague of the firstborn. Moses said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I'm going to go out into the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before and such as shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, and that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction 
between Egypt and Israel. All these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, Go out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. So this is what happens. Moses comes to Pharaoh for the 10th and final time, and he says, this is what's going to happen. About midnight, the Lord's going to send an angel through Egypt. He's going to kill every firstborn, not just the firstborn sons, but the firstborn daughters, not just the firstborn kids, but the firstborn of the flocks and the herds. Every firstborn is going to die. And of course, Pharaoh rejects that. He's, that's foolish. That's insane. That's, that's never going to happen. Even after all the other nine plagues have taken place, right? But God's still going to, he's going to take the firstborn and Pharaoh rejects that. And it says Moses leaves in hot anger. And Moses uh, receives instruction from God. This is in chapter 12. Moses receives instruction from God about how Israel is to protect itself in this situation. This is Exodus chapter 12, verses 3 through 7, as well as 12 and 13. These will be on the screen. Moses said, uh, or God said to Moses, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the 10th of this month, They are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire. And then go down to verses 12 and 13. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord." The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land in Egypt. In verse 12, he says that I am going to execute judgments on all the gods of Egypt. Egypt did not have just one god. They had a variety of gods. They had a god of the Nile River. So when God turned the Nile into blood, that's God saying, I'm more powerful than him. And you know what the god of the Nile River looked like? A frog. So here's Yahweh manipulating the frog in the Nile, right? They had a god named Ra, the sun god. So what did God do? I'm just going to make it dark. It's just God's way of saying, I'm more powerful than every god. He's executing judgments on all the false gods of Israel, and this is the final one, because who is the premier god? Sorry, not the false gods in Israel, the false gods in Egypt. Who is the premier god of Egypt? The Pharaoh. Who's he going to pass his kingdom off to? His firstborn son. And so God's about to execute judgment on the final God of Egypt that hasn't, been, hasn't received judgment yet. All of these plagues are God just saying, I'm more powerful than that God. I'm more powerful than that God. I'm more powerful than that God. They, they can't stand up against me. He's executing judgments on them. Now, this is what God says to the people of Egypt. He says, uh, each household must acquire an unblemished lamb, okay? This is the first time we see this idea of like an animal sacrifice uh, in 
uh, from the people of God in Exodus. Now, Abraham did animal sacrifices, and there's, there's a few others in Genesis, but as far as the Mosaic instructions, this is the first sacrifice. Mind you, we don't have a priesthood yet. We don't have Ten Commandments. We don't have Leviticus. We don't have all those laws yet. So this, get this lamb. You're going to take this lamb. You're going to get it on the 10th of the month, and then you're going to kill it on the 14th, four days later, uh, or three days later, depending on how you count days. And you're going to uh, kill it and eat it. You're going to celebrate a meal and you're going to take the blood of the lamb and you're going to use, they're supposed to use hyssop branches, dip it in the blood and essentially paint it on the doorposts of their home. I have a picture here, uh, just an illustration of a Jewish father doing that, uh, preparing for the Passover. Uh, and then his son is watching, but although his son looks to be, have a receding hairline in this picture, I don't know what's up with that, but um, so this is him using hyssop branches to put the blood of the Passover lamb over the doorpost. And then what's going to happen? Why would you put the blood of the lamb on your doorpost? Well, that's actually what caused the angel of death, and it uses the words, to pass over your home, which is why it's called Passover, because the angel of death is going to pass over every house that has the blood of the lamb over it. And I hope you're picking up on this, the uh, foreshadowing in the language here. Every household that is covered by the blood of the lamb is passed over and doesn't receive judgment. And so they do this, and there's no accounts of any families that failed to do this. It seemed like the people of, the Jewish people understood, like, this is real, we better do this, whereas the Egyptian people just were not receptive to this uh, instruction. The unblemished lamb clearly foreshadows the sinless perfection of Jesus and the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus, who died as a substitute for our sin. The blood of the lamb is brushed over the doorframe of each home, and deliverance through the blood of the lamb prefigures the salvation that is secured through Jesus, the lamb of God, by his death. In verse 14, 13, it says, when the Lord sees the blood of the lamb, he'll pass over the house. This, this happened roughly 1,500 years before Jesus was born or incarnated. And after this happened, they memorialized it every year. This only happened once. There wasn't an angel that came and swept through the land every year, but they celebrated it or memorialized it every year and still do to this day during a feast called Passover. And if you're familiar with Jewish holidays, around here our kids get school off for them. Uh, Passover celebrates this. This was celebrated for 1,445 years before Jesus was, became a baby and was incarnated. So for f almost 1,500 years, the Jewish people remembered that there was a lamb who was killed, whose blood was applied to their household in order for them to be saved. Now, one thing I like about this passage that I think is also foreshadowing is the blood of the lamb was both for the individual as well as for the household. That it could be applied for the whole household. As long as you got everybody under that blood on their way into the house, it applied to the whole household. How many, how many lambs were, were crucified? Sorry, foreshadowing too much here. How many lambs were sacrificed for a family of three? The same amount as was sacrificed for a family of ten. Now, when it got to a small number, like you were a single individual, you might, so that you weren't wasting lambs, you would uh, pair up with another household. But whether it's, whether it's a small family or a big family, the sacrifice is the same, right? 
And the sacrifice can be applied to individuals as well as to households. Um, we'll talk about what that means for us a little bit later. But there's, they, they celebrated this for almost 1,500 years. They would have this meal called Passover where they would celebrate it and they would remember the lamb that was slain so that they could be saved and that they did not experience death. Every little Jewish boy and girl would have grown up familiar with this story. Every year at Passover, they would have celebrated a meal and heard the story of the Passover, and they would have been familiar with the concept of a lamb that was a substitute. The lamb died so that they didn't have to die. The lamb's blood was shed so that their blood didn't have to be shed. They would be familiar with this concept. So one day, there's this little Jewish boy who grows up, and his name is John. We call him John the Baptist. This little Jewish boy grew up and he had a younger cousin, a little Jewish boy named Yeshua or Jesus. So John the Baptist and Jesus were like cousins or second cousins. Their mothers, uh, Mary and Elizabeth, were related. John the Baptist was born first. Of course, they didn't call him John the Baptist when he was born. Can you imagine that? That would be kind of funny. Like, oh, little John the Baptist, you know. I'd, you're going to be beheaded someday. So uh, his name was John. Well, John the Baptist and Jesus' cousins grew up together, uh, and when they were in their 30s, John the Baptist was this wild dude. What do you know about John the Baptist? He, he dressed different, right? John the Baptist didn't wear comfortable clothes. He wore camel hair garments, which were not comfortable. He, he just was not into luxury and comfort. He wore camel hair garments, which you can pick up at Walmart for $8.88. Uh, he, he ate bugs, locusts, dipped in honey. He didn't have to eat those things. There was better food available, but he ate locusts dipped in honey. He lived out in the wilderness, not in the city. I mean, he, was a, he lived a life of consecration. He was a unique individual who was wholly dedicated to serving God, and he wasn't gonna live a life of compromise or a life of comfort. He actually went around preaching this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, people responded to that message. People were, said, I, I'll repent. And John said, well, I'm gonna baptize you. And there would be lines on the Jordan River for people to come get baptized, and he would baptize them. And then one day his cousin, Jesus, shows up. And Jesus was a good boy. And there was some question about what, what does Jesus have to repent of? And there was a question like, John the Baptist actually said to Jesus, me baptize you? You should be the one baptizing me. And Jesus actually said to John, we're gonna do this just to fulfill all, every form of righteousness. Jesus didn't need to repent of anything, but Jesus, the whole idea of the incarnation becoming a human being was, I'm gonna go through everything you have to go through. You got to have your diapers changed? I'll have my diapers changed. You got to grow up dependent on other people? I'll be dependent on other people. You got to be baptized? I'll be baptized. You got to suffer? I'll suffer. You're going to be tempted? I'll be tempted. I'll go through everything you have to go through so that I can free you from your slavery to sin. So Jesus goes through this baptism, and we pick up the story in John chapter 1. Uh, and John chapter one is the story of Jesus' baptism. It's in the other gospels as well. But John the Baptist is such a holy guy that people are asking him, are you the Messiah? And he says, no, I'm not the Messiah. Someone greater than me is gonna come after me. And they say, are you Elijah? 
They want to know what's up with John the Baptist. He's such a, a holy man that they're starting to ask questions, and he's like, no, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the one that's going to save you. Apparently, we, we find out from verse 33, apparently John the Baptist had this moment with God where God said to him, you're going to baptize someone. When you see the Holy Spirit remain on a person, that's the one. We, you know, we don't have a story of that account, but he alludes to it, and I'll read, read it here. This is John chapter 1, verses 26 through 37. John answered the people saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and behold, and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. <clears throat> Let me pause right there in verse 30. John says of Jesus, he is the one about whom I said he has a higher rank for me, for he existed before me. Who came first? This is a trick question. John or his younger cousin Jesus? Jesus came first because Jesus has always existed. Now, Jesus was born after John. But John, I love this because it's so subtle. He's like, he came after me, but he existed before me. I love that. Even John seems to have his head somewhat wrapped around like this is not a normal person here. There's an eternal nature to Jesus uh, because even though he comes after me, he existed before me. Picking up in verse 31, I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified saying, I have seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So John says, the person who sent me to baptize said to me, he upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So John has this clue. He's like, I'm going to be baptizing people. At some point, someone I'm going to baptize, the Holy Spirit's going to descend and remain on them. That person will baptize other people with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is unique in that all through the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit descends on people but doesn't remain. The Holy Spirit came on Saul. The Holy Spirit came on Moses. The Holy Spirit came on Bezalel and Aholiab and a variety of people, prophets in the Old Testament. But Jesus is the first person that the Holy Spirit came on and then stayed. And we read uh, a good account of this in Matthew chapter four, or 3 and 4 where Jesus' baptism is recounted for us that the Holy Spirit remained on him. And because the Holy Spirit remained on him, he was qualified to now baptize other people in the Holy Spirit. This is the first person who's ever, and only person who's ever able to do this. The Holy Spirit remains on Jesus. So John baptizes Jesus and sees, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. The Holy Spirit descended on him and stayed. Now, I don't know how he saw that. I don't know if he actually saw the dove or if it was a discernment thing or what that was, but he knew Jesus is the one I was told to look for. So now he knows. He's probably one of the first ones to know. 
So when John sees Jesus walking around, this is in verse 29, which you already read, he sees Jesus coming to him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And again in verse 36, he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God would have clicked for every little Jewish boy and girl. The Lamb? Because that's not a phrase that was thrown around. I mean, that we weren't calling your, you know, your buddy and your neighbor, hey, what's up, my lamb? You know, like they weren't saying that. They're referring to the Passover. They're like, this is the actual lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. And so everything that they thought about that Passover lamb that they celebrated every year at Passover, that they remembered he was killed as a substitute and his blood was applied to individuals and households, Jesus is that, the fulfillment of that. Jesus is not a reminder of the lamb. The lamb is a reminder of Jesus. Jesus is the actual fulfillment, the the substance of the foreshadowing that the lamb provided. So John identifies Jesus as the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. He identifies Jesus as a sacrifice and a substitute. Now, I want to make sure that we get this correctly here. Uh, Jesus is not just a good moral example to us. Jesus is an example, and he is a moral example, but he is far more than a moral example. He is actually a substitute who took away our sin. If you hear people teaching that Jesus, well, you know, it it seems kind of archaic and brutal that God would demand a substitute, you know, that God would actually kill his own son in order to to sacrifice him to save us. That just seems kind of brutal and archaic and and, and, uh, primitive. I think Jesus was a good teacher and a good leader and a good example. That is not the gospel. The gospel makes it clear that Jesus was a what we call a penal substitute. He took our punishment that we were actually literally going to receive and that he was a substitute for us. So it's not, was he a substitute or an example? He was a substitute and an example. But if you throw the substitute thing out, you lose the gospel. You lose his sacrifice, you lose God's nature, you lose holiness, you lose our means of salvation if you throw that out. So we start with this Passover lamb, then we get to John saying this is the lamb of God, which actually, if you're familiar with the Latin phrase Agnes Dei, which I always think is Angus Dei, because of the meat thing, I just think, mm, Angus, but it's Agnes Dei, that la- that's a Latin phrase for the lamb of God. So we, just, we sang that song, a song called Agnes Dei, uh, during the worship this morning, and that's referring to the lamb of God. So we have this Passover lamb, then we have Agnes Day, the Lamb of God, and the lamb imagery continues into Revelation 5. If you uh, have Bibles, go to Revelation 5. If not, this will be up on the screen. But the imagery of the lamb continues. So really quickly, let's get our characters straight. We have John the Baptist, who I just shared his story, and we read it from the book of John. John the Baptist and the Apostle John are not the same person. They have the same name, but John the Baptist died in the Gospels. He was beheaded. John the, Baptist, uh, John the Apostle 
is the only apostle that was not murdered or killed for his faith, but he was kicked out to live on an island by himself, essentially exiled to be imprisoned on an island. John the apostle wrote the story I just read to you from about John the Baptist and Jesus and Jesus' baptism. That same John the apostle also wrote the book of Revelation. Okay, does that make sense? So John the apostle writes Revelation, and at the beginning of Revelation, John is, he sees this vision. He, you know, how this happened, I don't exactly know, but he sees this vision. In the vision, he sees a throne, and he's in a throne room, and it is magnificent. There, there is a, you know, the floor looks like a sea made out of glass, and on the throne is this, it's God, but it's this being who is almost indescribable. He does offer a description, but he talks about there's, there's lightning and thunder coming out from the throne, and there's a God is on the throne, and around the throne are four living creatures. And these creatures are like composite, like compilations of different, you know, it's got the head of a man, but the body of this, and the, you know, it's like uh, got wings, and it's just like a, like a composite being here. And there's four of them, and these four living creatures are singing a song to God on the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Not only are there four living creatures, but there's actually 24 elders around them seated on smaller thrones. So picture, there's a throne in the middle and God is on that throne and God is just like, there's just thunder and lightning coming out of the throne, right? Around him in a smaller circle or so is is the four living creatures around them is the 24 elders seated around them and what are the 24 elders doing well they're also singing a song i love i love how the creatures and the elders are both singing at the same time not even the same song the 24 elders are are saying Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things because of your will they existed or were created. This is what John sees in heaven. A throne with God on it, around that, four living creatures, around that, 24 elders, either singing or saying praise to God. And then we pick up in Revelation 5, this is how the story continues. This will be up on the screen. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that's God, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. <clears throat> and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seal? So in the ancient times, you would seal up a, a book and uh, think of a scroll, not so much a book with, that's bound, but think of a scroll. It's got seven seals on it. Only someone who had the proper authority. This is not a matter of I'm not strong enough to open the seals. It's I don't have the authority to open this. And there's this scroll or book and it needs to be opened. This book represents the title deed to the earth. Okay, think about if you buy a house or a car, you get a title or a deed that shows that you are the rightful owner of that property, right? This scroll is that for the whole earth. It's the title deed for the earth. And no one is there who's worthy to open it. Or is there? This is the question. All of chapter five is an answer to the question, who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep, John says, 
greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. So there's this scroll. It represents the title or the deed to the earth. No one, he says, who's worthy to open it? No one there is worthy. So John starts to cry. There's no one who can open this. Then one of the elders said to me, stop crying or stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So John sees now, he's told the lion of the tribe of Judah can open the scroll and when he turns around, he sees a lamb. <laughs> Not a lion, a lamb. This is, I love this. The lion is a lamb. And the lamb is a lion. You know, the, the lamb is as fierce and ferocious as a lion. And the lion is as gentle and meek as a lamb. So he sees this lamb standing as if slain. We learn later in the book of Revelation that this lamb has blood coming from a wound. The lamb has seven horns. The seven horns represent full or perfect authority. Horns in the Bible almost always represent authority. And seven eyes. Eyes in the Bible almost always represent knowledge or understanding. So this lamb has all the authority and all the knowledge. (laughs) And he's been wounded. You picking up on the imagery here? He also, uh, it says, uh, the eyes are the seven spirits of God. So now we're talking about the fullness of the spirit sent out into all the earth. The lamb came and took the book and out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne, God the Father. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. So they were centered around the God on the throne, but now they're falling down before the lamb. It's It's almost as if the father and the lamb are both God, but not the same. Does that make sense? So just like the Father and Jesus are both God, yet unique, distinct persons. Each one was holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Time out. I want you to know that there are bowls in heaven full of incense, and that is our prayers. Our prayers, I don't know how this works, are somehow represented by a bowl of incense in heaven. <clears throat> They sang a new song, answering this question, who is worthy? This is the song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of pre- and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Let me continue reading. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne of the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and the thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, again, we're answering this question, who is worthy? Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. So here's this lamb. All of heaven is, uh, is worshiping this lamb. The 24 elders, the four living creatures. 
This lamb is worthy to open the scroll, the title deed to the earth. And God in his foresight said, let me just drop some hints at the Passover so that they're prepared for this when it comes. About, and let me drop some hints in the sacrificial system when they sacrifice lambs. Let me prepare them for this. I, look how, I mean, I'm like, look how good God is to us. He's easing us into this stuff, teaching us when we don't even know we're being taught. You know, he's just dropping a little bre- trail of breadcrumbs here. Just follow that trail. Like, and, and eventually you get to this incredible scene in Revelation 5. And look how it spans almost the whole arc of the Bible. Right? I mean, we start in Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible. It carries all the way through to Revelation, which is the final book of the Bible. God wants us to understand this. Now, the lamb that has the authority to open up the title or deed to the whole earth shed his blood for us. I want you to think about this. What we believe about God starts with he's the creator. Okay, that's, that's how almost every religion, culture, worldview defines God as the creator. Okay, who is the, that's the first question every culture or religion seeks to answer about God is that's, God is the person or being that's responsible for this, for existence, right? God is the creator of the entire universe, not just the earth, the universe, right? Um, that God is all-knowing. He knows everything, omniscient. Nothing sneaks past him. Not only does he know everything in reality, he knows every possibility. What could happen if we made a different decision or some other circumstance changed? Not only does he know everything, he has all the power in the, in the universe, all the power. Everything that is powerful derives its power from him. He's the source of it, right? He is... All present. He's everywhere. Um, it says in, in the Psalms and elsewhere in the Bible that the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain him. Which is a, a back, a, like a backdoor way of backing into the idea that he's everywhere. Not only is he everywhere, he's overflowing out of everywhere. The, even the heavens can't contain God. We often think that God is in heaven. Maybe heaven is in God. He overflows out of it. I mean, I can't even wrap my mind fully around it, but like, not only is he everywhere, he's everywhere and then some. <laughs> he's extra. You know, like he's me when I put my jeans on. You know, like little extra fill, flowing out, spilling. No one thinks that. Susan, that's like a good joke there. Okay, no? All right. You guys are still beat up from this week, I can tell. Me too. He's everywhere. The heavens and the highest heavens can't even contain him. He does miracles. <clears throat> he knows everything. He's everywhere. He has all power. I love this about God. And that God loves you. He's, he's on your side. Now, you might not be on his side, and there's consequences for that. But he wants what is best for you. He has sacrificed for you. He has shed his own blood for you. He has gone out of his way to seek you and to save you and to search for you. That God that I was talking about loves you and wants you to be in relationship with him. And that relationship is only made possible by this lamb. 
We need to apply the blood of the lamb to our households the way that the Israelites did way back in the beginning. Jesus' blood needs to be applied to our, us as individuals as well as our households. Now, how do we apply it? That's such a weird way to think about it. Like, they had an actual physical lamb who they killed. They drained his blood into a bowl, took some brush, uh, branches and d- dabbled it in there and then wiped it on the door, right? That's how they applied the blood of the lamb and you had to either be inside or under that blood in order to be protected, right? Wouldn't it be nice if we had some physical thing that we could do to express that? Well, uh, aside from things like communion and baptism, which are our you know, physical representations, Um, of Jesus' blood being applied to us. The way that we apply the blood is through faith and prayer. So we apply the blood to ourselves when we put our faith in Jesus. By putting our faith in Jesus, this is what I mean. All of my hope for salvation is in Jesus. It's not in my good works. It's not in my church attendance. It's not in my good behaviors. All of any hope I have to be saved is just because Jesus is good and he has been a substitute for my uh, for me. He has been a substitution for my sin. He's taken the penalty. So all of my hope, my faith is in Jesus. Not only is my hope is in him, uh, my hope in him, my trust. I think he can do it. I believe he can do it. This isn't a, you know, roll of the dice and let's hope this works. I'm actually confident, and that confidence is expressed in the way I live my life today. Not just like, I'm going to hold my breath and hope this whole Jesus thing works out, and I'll find out when I die, which is a very popular approach to Christianity, and it's not Christianity. But the, the hope and also the trust express themselves today, that we believe that this is not just a possibility, but that it's a certainty We do this by putting our faith in Jesus and we do this as individuals. Every individual has to personally respond to God for themselves. But there is also this principle throughout both the Old and the New Testaments that there is some level of application here for a household. I mean, they they put the blood over the door of the house and everyone that was in the house was saved. Even though it was just the dad that put the blood there, the whole family was preserved. Now someday those kids are going to become moms and dads of themselves and they're going to have to take responsibility. This goes through the Old Testament and then even in the New Testament there's a jailer. There's a man who puts his faith in Jesus and it says his whole household came and followed him and was saved. Now that is not a guarantee that every time an adult or a parent or a head of a household puts their faith in Jesus that the whole family then is covered. It's not a guarantee that that happens every time. It's an example that it can happen sometimes. Does that make sense? That when one person puts their faith in Jesus, perhaps the whole family follows. It doesn't happen every time in the Bible, but it happens enough to say, maybe. Right, it gives us hope. It puts it, it's on the menu. You know, it's, it's on God's, playbook it's in God's playbook that like sometimes one person brings a whole household in does that make sense and so you know I don't know if that it well certainly it does not happen with every family but it can and I think that as believers we should take the approach that I'm going to at least hope for that I'm going to at least put some effort into that and I'm going to be praying for my household and praying for my family and doing what I can to bring them under the blood of the lamb as well. Now, I want to close with this, and then I'm going to have the worship team come up.
There is this group that I've told you about many, many times called the Moravians. I actually have their logo. If you want to throw that up there, yeah, that's it. Okay. In, I think it was the 1700s, there was this group in Germany called the Moravians. The guy that led them was, I think his first name was Nicholas, but his last name was Count, uh, Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. Sounds like a dude from a, like an old English movie to me. Well, he was a rich man. He was a count. One, two, like from Sesame Street. That could be based on him. He was a count. He was rich. He could have anything. One day he found Jesus and stopped pursuing all the riches. He was like the rich young ruler, except that he actually gave his life to Jesus. He fell so deeply in love with Jesus that he began to lead a group of people and he established a little community of faith in Herdhut or Herdhut, Germany. And they lived very dedicated, consecrated whole lives to Jesus. And I've told you about this group. They started a prayer meeting, I think it was on Christmas Day one year. And the prayer meeting went long and they decided that the prayer meeting was going so well they started organizing People would come in in one or two hour shifts around the clock. That prayer meeting went on uninterrupted, no breaks, no stops for 100 years. They scheduled a rotating, on a rotating basis. Before one person left, another person arrived. It went on for 100 years. That 100 year long prayer meeting sparked the beginning of the modern missionary movement. And in 100 years, that little group of people I mean, not just a few hundred people sent out 300 missionaries. Missionaries always come out of prayer meetings. It's, I mean, that's the way it goes in Acts 13. It's, they always come out of like deeper life situations of people who are living really devoted lives to Jesus, who love prayer, who are sensitive to the Holy Spirit. You know what pops out of that? Missionaries, just all the time. And so... 300 missionaries come out of this movement in 100 years. This little group, this is not a you know, big global worldwide movement until the missionaries start getting sent out. These missionaries were not simply career missionaries, they were life missionaries. Here's what I mean by that. They began to make huge, incredible sacrifices in order to get to where they needed to go as missionaries. Some of them could not get to places. that They couldn't get passage to certain nations. They couldn't get passage to certain countries. They either didn't have the money or they didn't have permission. So they, some of these missionaries would actually sell themselves into slavery so that they could go to the nation that they needed to go to. So if I need to get to this nation, I'll sell myself as a slave to a resident of that nation and that will get me there, and I'll serve as a missionary while I'm a servant there. Does that make sense? Huge sacrifice. I mean, you don't get to come back and visit your family after that. You don't get to live life the way that you want to after that. Huge sacrifices. They set the example for missionaries of other movements. I know missionaries in our denomination and the Christian Missionary Alliance at the beginning, you know what they used to pack their belongings in? Caskets. Not suitcases. They would put them in caskets because they figured, I'm going to die there. And so the, these Moravians set the example. And not only did they crank out missionaries at an incredible rate, they cranked out worship music. Again, these, things are the, these are the types of things that flow out of 
prayer and prayer meetings. They cranked out worship music. And uh, one of the phrases that they would sing all the time, and this was kind of their slogan, is what's around here, around this image. Our lamb has conquered, let us follow him. And this, is, this has been their image for about 300 years that this group uses. Now, the Moravians, sadly, have kind of drifted away from these early roots. They're not, I think they would not exactly look like the original Moravians, but in their beginning, they were obsessed with things like worship and prayer and missions, and they coined this phrase, our lamb has conquered, let us follow him. Now, you know, if you didn't know before this, you know now, who is the lamb? Jesus. Jesus has conquered. Let us follow him, right? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, first and foremost, the two great commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your strength and with all your soul. And then the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. I think, uh, I think what got the Moravians to that attitude is the lamb, the obsession with the lamb. Look at the lamb, how he suffered. Look at the lamb, how he bled. Look at the lamb, how he substituted himself, put himself in the place of others for the sake of bringing salvation, right? Now, you and I are not lambs that go around sacrificing ourselves in order to save other people. Jesus is the lamb, but we learn from that example where we, we do sacrifice for the salvation of others. We don't earn their salvation. We bring the message of salvation to them. We invite them into salvation. But this lamb concept is so powerful that it sparked what I'm talking about here. And if you can grasp the lamb of God, starting at the Passover, moving into the Agnes Day, the lamb of God, moving into Revelation 5, the lamb on the throne, if you can wrap your head and your heart around this concept of the lamb, I think you'll, there'll be a similar reaction, a similar response. There'll be this deep devotion that overflows in prayer and worship and evangelism. The, the concept of the lamb is what sparked the Moravians and the concept of the lamb can spark us as well. And if we are devoted to and obsessed with following him, I don't even know if we'll have the time and the energy to worry about who else we follow. You know what I mean? So I'm gonna ask John Eric and the worship team to come up. They're gonna lead us in a closing song. It's gonna help us to focus on the lamb and I'm gonna ask that the Lord would spark in us something similar to what he did in the lives of the Moravians. Jesus, we thank you that you are the lamb, that the lamb of Passover foreshadowed you, that you are the substance of that picture, that you are the ultimate fulfillment there. Jesus, we receive you as our lamb, the, the only lamb. You are the one whose blood was shed to, to protect us and to save us from God's wrath and Lord, we apply, by faith, we apply your blood to us as well as to our households. I ask, Lord, that those in our households that are young, maybe too young to make a decision, maybe don't understand, I pray, Lord, that when they come of age, that they would put their faith in you. I pray that those who are perhaps old enough to understand but still have not made a decision, Lord, I pray that they would make a decision to personally, individually apply the blood of the Lamb. To their hearts so that they can be saved from your wrath. Thank you, Jesus, for distinguishing 
between your people and those that have rejected you. And Lord, we line up among those who are your people that have received you, not rejected you. And I pray that in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.